Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, if I have not a chance to meet you, connect with you, uh, my name is Wally. I'm the teaching pastor here. Thrilled to be with you this morning. Um, so uh, we, we are in this... Uh, whoops. I'm going to slip on those because I'm going to go... <laughs> there you go, John. There you go. You're going to need those more than me. Um, so we're coming to the end of Advent, and we're closing in on Christmas, and so I'm excited for, oh, sorry, no, we're in Lent, and we're coming up to Easter. Someone forgot to tell the universe that, apparently. It's not Advent. I literally was like, I kind of feel like I should put that in. Next week's not Christmas. It's Easter. Now, um, this, this week, this day, so it's understood as Palm Sunday, uh, and it kicks off uh, what is known as Passover week or Holy Week, and which it is this last Passion Week of uh, Jesus historically, so we're going to sink into that. We're going to we're going to dig in. We're going to have lots. I'm going to have lots of fun with it this morning. I hope you do as well. Uh, but it also is both uh, challenging and encouraging for us as the church. Um, but before we sink into that, I would love to say a word of prayer, and then what I want to do as best that I can in this setting is take us to Israel and I want us to walk out this day, this scene as best that we can. Sound good? It will be such a joy. So um, let's pray and then dig in. Uh, gracious God, we bless you for this moment, this time, this space that we have to gather to listen, not just with ears, but with our hearts, our heads, all of it, that we can sink in and hear what you have to say to us, individually and collectively uh, as the church. Uh, we bless you, God, for this moment, this time together, and uh, God, it is my prayer that the posture, meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth, that they would bring honor and glory to you and you alone. And anything that is not, that it just fall aside, that we would just be in one ear and out the other, if you will. Uh, we bless you, God, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So, Passover week, Palm Sunday, what I want to do is this whole idea of Palm Sunday in, in Passover, it, it is a, a week-long festival. Passover would be a week-long festival in which the Jewish people celebrate the historical liberation from Egypt. So that's going back to the Hebrew scriptures. So there is that, but it's, it's more, it's bigger because they're celebrating uh, rescue and liberation from foreign domination as a whole, and then specifically from being enslaved in Egypt back then, their story. But this week is also a celebration of being set free, of being rescued. This is one of those festivals, one of those that would be a pilgrimage festival in which they would go to Jerusalem. 
So all the people would travel to Jerusalem for, for the week to have a week-long festival. And there are three annual Jewish festivals that required the people to travel to the temple in Jerusalem for this. So we'll find this in the book of Deuteronomy, one of the five books that make up the Torah. So we'll go to Deuteronomy first that explains these three festivals. Three times a year in Deuteronomy 16, 16, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, that is the temple in Jerusalem. At the festival of unleavened bread, Passah or Passover, that's what this festival is, or the festival of weeks, Shavuot, and the festival of tabernacles, also known as Sukkot. Uh, no one should appear before the Lord empty-handed. So they're going to travel to Jerusalem these three different times of year in, in order to have a week-long party. And if you're going to have a party, it should be a week long. What are we doing? What are we doing? I mean, we do a party and you're like, listen, you come at five and you leave at eight. What? No, please. Should be a week long. Now, they do it right. Now, we want to situate ourselves. If, if we're with Jesus, with his disciples and with Jesus, what this, this whole movement would be, they're going to spend some time and they're going to be where they've spent, Jesus has spent about 90% plus of his public ministries in the Galilee region, so more northern Israel, and they spent time there, and they're going to start making their way south to Jerusalem, so we want to take that uh, pilgrimage with them. Now, to do this, they spent what Jesus' hometown, what they often refer to as hometown during his public ministry was Capernaum, or Cafe uh, Neum, when you're just being annoying and want to pronounce it in that way. Uh, we always say Capernaum, but it's Neum. Uh, but if you were to go from Capernaum down to uh, uh, Jerusalem, it's about 85 to 90 miles. But that typically, traveling in the Israel in the hot desert sun, and you would go, that, that trek would usually be a three-day journey. And then, um, you're, so you're traveling there, uh, you would typically get to at one point where you're going to go to one road that's known as the Jericho Road. So Jericho Road is this one road that'll take you into Jerusalem. And so what I want to do is I want to take you with some pictures. So we have a picture of uh, Jericho Road. So it's that small, and, and it is really narrow path. Even today, there's a narrow path. So you're winding this. It's desert. It's hilly. The way it moves, and it is uh, a very dangerous road. So Jericho Road, so when you hear a parable of the Good Samaritan is what we often refer to and how dangerous it would be. When you're traveling the Jericho Road, there's awfully, often bandits hiding out and that's where they go and rob people because where are you going to go? You go to the left, you fall. You go to the right and there's, well, there's a mountain, you can't. And so even in that story when it says, and then he crossed the road and stuff, there's like humor within it because you go, you can't cross the road. Cross the road looked like this. So when to go around the guy is kind of like you basically have to step over the guy. Now there's that. But this road, it winds through hot, dry desert, um, and it begins. So Jericho, Jericho is, the, is known as the oldest and the lowest city in the world. Jericho is the oldest and the lowest city in the world. It sits, Jericho sits 846 feet below sea level, and then you're going to climb to Jerusalem, which Jerusalem is nearly 3,000 feet above sea level. 
So that means a long, winding, uphill, dry, desert journey from there, at which point there's almost like a movie kind of appearance of the first real vegetation when you would be coming into uh, the, the region near Jerusalem, you would now start seeing green and vegetation uh, and the beautiful view of Jerusalem that's the king's city. So it's pure exhilaration, especially when you're traveling here on a pilgrimage knowing we're coming here for a week-long festival, a week-long celebration. It would just get all excited, come from dry desert, oh, there's vegetation, oh, it's the king's city, and people would get really, really excited. Now, uh, I have a, like this kind of map thing to give you an idea too, so you have Jericho Road here, and so then you're going to go up, and it's about 20 miles then from Jericho to Jerusalem, and you can see you're going to go through what these foothills, where it's dry desert, and this move, and you got... Uh, Kafarnaum up top, so it gives you this idea of how this journey would go, and uh, really, really is helpful and beautiful, and when you walk it and you experience this, and now when you get into where you're coming up to Jerusalem, it's the place where God has chosen, where he says, this is my place, this is where I will reside, if you will, but it's God's chosen place for his reputation, his name, his presence to be. And so it represented hope for the people. So there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that would be going into the city for this week. They're piling in. And what this means, if you're Rome. So now think if you are Rome. If you're Rome who occupies Israel, what you have to do is... It's now, this is one of those weeks you have to take precaution by getting and galvanizing additional military forces in preparation to squash any attempt of rebellion or uprising. Because this is one of those things is all these Hebrew people, all the Jewish people are coming to Jerusalem and you're going to be in this place where you're being cranked up about liberation of what we're celebrating back there in our story, but we're anticipating a bigger liberation and maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the time. Maybe this is the week. And so they're getting cranked up and so Rome's like, we need to get more military. We need to really be ready just in case there is an uprising. Because since its inception, the Passover festival, this celebration, has a dual meeting. In the Hebrew scriptures, the people are called to gather for a holy, and what we often read in the scriptures is a holy convocation, which is not really how we talk, but it's a festival. And the Hebrew word for festival is mikrah. Go ahead and say mikrah. Mikra, which means festival, it means coming together festival, but it also means rehearsal. Rehearsal. So when they're getting together, they're throwing a party from, from what was, but they're also rehearsing for what will be. Anytime the church gathers, it's both a celebration of what is, but it's also a rehearsal for what will be. So every time we should be rehearsing for forever, that kind of thing. So yes, it began by celebrating the rescue from Egypt, but it quickly grew into a rehearsal for 
whatever is enslaving the people, whatever or whoever was enslaving us, we're also rehearsing for a liberation for what will be, for all that the divine has created us to be. So for the Hebrew people, it went from Egypt to Assyria, Babylon to Persia, the Ptolemies, then the Seleucids, all these people that had conquered them, that, that had enslaved them in some way or had pressed them. Then you go to Greece, all the way into the first century, the time of Jesus, and now it's Rome who is occupying and oppressing the people. And Rome was unmatched as a global military superpower. Rome knows that this festival is one of those key moments in which these people might just lose it and they might revolt. So let's get ready. Why would they think that too? 200 years before this Passover festival, uh, Judah Maccabeus, and I talked about this a few weeks ago, he defeated the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He cleansed and reclaimed the temple and this victory was celebrated by the Jewish people by, here's how they celebrated this uh, Judah Maccabeus victory. They cut off ivy and palm branches and they waved them around in celebration. Yep. With singing, raucous hymns and singing. And I love that. Raucous hymns. It's exactly how you think of hymns, right? Oh, it's just getting out of control. It should be. Uh, but the, the problem was Judas, Judah Maccabeus' dynasty lasted only 100 years. And then that left the people longing and wanting, well, when is this new thing going to happen, this forever thing? Where is the actual king, Messiah? When is that going to be? So now that's stacked on top of this rebellion that did take place, but it didn't last. So that is what they are hoping for is when will this happen. So Rome knows that any sign of rebellion needed to be immediately met in a forceful and very public way because it needs to communicate to all people, if you try and rise up, you will be squashed if you try this. Now typically, the Roman governor, and at this time, first century Jesus, it's Pontius Pilate, you might know that name, he held residence in the Herodian palace in the coastal city of Caesarea Maritima. So we're going to put that up. I think we have a slide. Uh, yep, so Caesarea, a map here, Caesarea Maritima, right there on Mediterranean Sea. And so he, typically the governor, has a palace there. It's Herod's palace, one of, one of Herod's many palaces there. And he's going to make the trek down to and east to Jerusalem. Because he typically resides there, but it's, it's now Passover week, so we've got to get to Jerusalem, and we've got to take our forces there and be ready. So now I want to take you, there's the map, now a sketch. Uh, so next slide. This slide will show, this is what it looked like back in the first century. Uh, this would be Herod's palace on the Mediterranean Sea. There is unbelievable theater over here and then this is known as the hippodrome this is one where where uh, one of the first olympic games took place uh, in this area and so beautiful palace this is where it sits and this is what he leaves um, uh, next slide uh, this is one of the pictures i took 
uh, today, what it looks like where you've excavated. You can still see where the palace sat on the water, and this is a mosaic that was on the floor of the palace, so you can still see that outline, quite lovely. Um, but what Pilate would do is then he gets together uh, his army, and he's going to make the march from Caesarea Maritima and head into Jerusalem. He's going to come riding in on a majestic horse, which is biblically understood as a war horse. That's how they usually called him. It's fascinating how the most common depiction of the horse in the Bible is the ancient equivalent of the military tank. That's what they saw horses as. You have mules and donkeys, which were draft animals, but horses were weapons. So when Pilate rides in on the war horse, it's a power play. It's a symbol of intimidation. Pilate would have a sword on his side, and then uh, many scholars conclude that he probably had 36,000, which would be six legions, 36,000 soldiers coming behind him in tow as they ride into the city. You need to picture this thing. I think we have a slide of... Uh, yeah. Those guys. But to give you an idea, and you go, now picture 36,000 of these folks coming in from the west to the east into Jerusalem in order to intimidate, in order to show you this is what's going down. So as, as his military and entourage descend onto the city, you would basically have moms and dads. They'd be grabbing their kids off the road and getting out of the way. And then you have this mixture of these Jewish people that would be standing and they'd be watching and they would have these feelings which is a mix of like fear and the mood would be kind of dread and indignation. But what you would display is hi, a uh, hi, hi, oh yeah, look at you, but inside you're like, you fool. So you have to, but you have to portray this, oh yeah, here comes Pilate. The one who symbolizes Caesar in Rome, an empire. So this is one part of the scene that's coming from the west. Can you picture this scene going west-east coming in? Simultaneously, another scene continues to take shape on the dry and dusty Jericho Road, one moving from east to west toward Jerusalem. So we're going to go to the gospel according to Mark to better sketch out this scene. Chapter 11, verse 1 and 2. As they, Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village, one of those villages, ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. So in order to further visualize this, here is one of my favorite pictures. So next, this is a picture I took standing on the Mount of Olives and looking back, Bethany, Beth Page would have been here, but Bethany back there, and so as you're coming in this way from the Mount of Olives, this is what you're coming into. So it was looking back. And then um, next slide uh, is a bit of a sketch that you can see as you would come up through this onto the Mount of Olives, and there, that's the temple in Jerusalem, and you see that front door area, that's where Pilate is coming in. He's coming that way, Jesus is coming this way, he's coming on a war horse with a huge army with him, Jesus is coming on a what? A donkey. Ooh. 
Not so intimidating. So then we're going to go and jump to um, verse 7 to continue this. So verse 7, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So this scene operates really like a parody of Pilate's scene. Because not only is Jesus entering Jerusalem from the opposite direction as Pilate, he's also entering in the opposite manner as Pilate. Riding humbly on the colt of a donkey. So by the way, a colt of a donkey is not even a full-size donkey. So it's one of those things where Jesus probably sat on it and then walked. <laughs> kind of a thing. You can picture that. Jesus is like, man, I didn't wear my good sandals today and now it's really kicking up. Um, and then when it says never ridden before, one that's never ridden, it's, that would communicate an animal that is set aside for the purpose of dedication to God. That's what that communicates. Uh, the public spreading of cloaks hints at kingship. So in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 9, verse 13, we have this. It says, they quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him uh, on the bare steps, that's Jehu, and then they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So have from this time, this is something they would do to inaugurate their new king. So when they're spreading the cloaks, it's setting like this picture of like, what are they doing? What are they saying about this guy? What's happening right now? And then the waving of the palm branches, which I love that we do with our kids, because what we just did is, ha ha, woo, wave, and we're like, kids, fun time. That is a massive political statement. It was a defiant, subversive, political statement. That's, that's what you just saw our kids doing, correct? Subverting empire? Come on. That's great. Well done, kids. You teach us. So the, they're doing that. It's like, because they're welcoming a king or a political leader, kind of like Judah Maccabeus, and they're like, whoa, what's going on? So they're doing this. This scene would also bring to mind the words of the Hebrew prophet Zechariah, writing some 500 years earlier about the king, coming of the king to bring victory and peace. So if we go to Zechariah, it's 9, verse 9, where it's, we're going to start with verse 1, though. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Uh, by the way, in Hebrew, the word salvation in the Hebrew scriptures is Yahshua. Salvation, Yahshua, which is then transliterated Jesus. Here comes that. Having salvation, humbly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, of a donkey. I will take away that, but what's going to happen? What's this king going to do? I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river, that is Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. 
which would launch the people into worship, a time of raucous celebration as they understood that this king, or at least this political leader, has finally arrived. Which raises the question, will Jesus now wipe out the Roman occupation? Is he going to return the temple to glory by taking out Rome, Caesar, the governor? So the people are shouting, Hosanna, which literally translates, save us, please, we pray. The people are singing and shouting, save us, please, we pray which is quoted from Psalm 118, verses 25 to 25. Uh, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. And that prayer, it's a prayer sung to Messiah, which is a small section of a, a larger Jewish liturgy known as the Hallel, which is actually Psalms 113 through 118. They would be singing these. So this frenzied crowd is crying out for salvation through the military success of the son of David. That's what they are understanding this scene to be about. So they had a very specific idea of what they think Jesus is doing, and yet this scene is really confusing if Jesus is to accomplish the overthrowing of the Roman Empire. Because the Jesus parade is not intimidating. It's not a military affair. Unless you include the 12 disciples, which are a mix of fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, which is a political anarchist, and a faux banker, Judas. He acts as the treasurer, but he just uses it to steal. So he's more of a thief. Hardly a military force. That's who's coming in behind the Jesus riding slash pushing his donkey along. Now we're going to head to the Gospel of Luke to get some additional details. Luke chapter 19, verse 39 to 41. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They're shouting out, I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Tears in the midst of celebration, Jesus is crying. This scene is now turning and giving a very different flavor. We now have Jesus displaying vulnerable tears, cascading down his cheeks, which is an announcement that if humanity does not understand and respond to the true meaning of rescue and freedom, then even inanimate stones will cry out if humanity doesn't get it. This parade, the one opposite of Pilate's military parade, is one of humble declaration that a very different kind of kingdom and king is here. What we see taking shape is that there are three very different perspectives of what is happening in this story. There is the imperial parade of empire. Then there is the religious and social zeal celebrated by the palm branch waving people. And third, there is Jesus weeping for the city, weeping for people who just don't get it. They don't understand what true freedom is. 
So there is empirical intimidation, there's religious expectation and celebration, and then there are tears of devastation over misapplication. Verse 42 of Luke 19. If only, Jesus says, you'd known, he said, on this day, even you, what peace meant. You don't get it. Oh, breaks my heart. That's what I want. But now it's hidden and you can't see it. Yes, the days are coming upon you when your enemies will build up earthworks all around you and encircle you and squeeze you in from every direction. They will bring you crashing to the ground, you and your children within you. They won't leave one single stone on another because you didn't know the moment when God was visiting you. Jesus is speaking here in this scene is what will take place about 40 years from now, from his time, in 70 CE, then the religious zealots are going to revolt against Rome. Rome is going to crush them, destroy Jerusalem, and smash the temple to pieces in 70. So Jesus is saying, yeah, it's going to happen. If you try and go this way, if you think military is the way to go, it's going to go badly for you. And it does. In 70 CE, when the uh, emperor Vespasian leads these people into destroying Jerusalem and the temple. So this raises the incredibly important and very needed question, how does one define peace? Rome's version of peace is when the enemy is silenced when they are utterly destroyed. So peace through military victory, which is one of their main propaganda slogans that the Roman Empire had. Peace through military victory. Disintegrate those who disagree with the Roman way. Jesus' version of peace is not about destruction. Jesus' peace is centered around restoration and new creation. Peace is not about removing the other, but peace offers healing and reconciliation to all others. Jesus chooses to absorb violence, allowing it to be fully emptied onto him, revealing how empty the idea of peace through violence actually is. Are you with me? Which takes us back to the scene of the two very different parades that are taking place. There is one draped in militarism and promoting empire, which, which announces that the way of peace is through crucifying one's enemies. And there is the one proclaiming an alter alternative kingdom in which peace is accomplished through forgiving and loving one's enemies. One says that war will shape the world, and the other trusts that God will heal the world which means the Hosanna, save us, please we pray, needs to be shouted with a sense of anguish, not as a plea for Jesus to join our side, to bless our troops, and to help us win our war. Rather, it must be a plea to save us from our addiction to war and violence all together. And the Jesus we are crying out to is the Jesus who is simultaneously crying for us to understand what it means to follow him into true freedom. 
This is a call that takes us into while also transcending a life of thanksgiving. It begins with thanksgiving, but then it keeps going and there's more. Because the shadow side of only thanking Jesus for sacrificial love is to operate in a safe and status quo existence. The summons here is to transcend thanksgiving by imitating Jesus in response to the invitation to follow him, even up to and through crucifixion. Oh, now we're just like, you see where people got off the bus. These people that were cheering him on within a few days are going to be the ones standing, screaming, and yelling, kill him. In following the person and way of Jesus, we learn to die to the small self and our own individualistic salvation project. This helps us better grasp why Jesus was found weeping for the people on this Palm Sunday. He knew they didn't understand the role of a true king, one that would bring peace, that is shalom, a wholeness and completeness. Jesus did not come to conquer kingdoms and nations. He came to transform hearts and minds. The battle isn't against flesh and blood. They are not the enemy. The battle is against the lie that victory is found in eliminating other people rather than the love that transforms the heart and minds of other people. Palm Sunday is a tale of two parades, one where Caesar's prefect rides a war horse and one where God's anointed Messiah rides a donkey. One parade derives its power from a willingness to crucify its enemies. The other derives its power by embracing the cross and forgiving its enemies. One parade is about being over others and believes fear is power. The other is about being with others and knows that love is power. Those are two very different parades. The scene has been set. The parades are in place. The two-fold question for us today is, which parade will you march in? And what do you understand this parade to be creating and accomplishing? And the second piece of that question is huge because there are many people who claim to be marching with Jesus, yet are craving and calling for the ways of empire. Lots of people. Oh, in the United States, majority say we are Christian. They, they would say that. And yet what they're after, what they're longing for, or what they think is happening is empire. This isn't only Palm Sunday. It's not only one Holy Week. This is each day and every day. It's everywhere these two parades show up. No matter the week, the year, or the city, one flaunts empire and power over while the other Jesus procession subverts that power with sacrificial love. God in Jesus descends into humanity in order to love and save humanity. 
which takes us to a Hebrew prophet offering a warning and then offering a new way forward and a new way out of exile. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah chapter 31 verse 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, who rely on the military to do everything. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Then Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, we go back to that piece. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken he, the Messiah, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The prophets are not asking people to intellectually agree with them. They're calling for people who will embody the peace of Jesus. A pastor and author, one of my favorites, Brian Zond, says this, about the scriptures. If all we do is read about Father Abraham and King David, the Virgin Mary and Mary Magdalene, and never open our hearts to our own experiences, we have become history readers instead of God seekers. The Bible is not just giving us mere information, it is hinting at portals that can lead to our own spiritual experiences. This story of two parades isn't for us to simply read, but for us to wrestle with and then choose which we will walk in and embody. I'd say it this way, faithful Christ followers will not be those who intellectually believe the stories in the Bible happen, but will be those who relate to the biblical characters and stories because they have had similar experiences and so their very lives affirm that the stories continue to happen over and over in and through us. When people say that, oh, did this happen? It happens in us. It should, could in desires to happen in and through us. We're not asked to vote for which parade we like. We're being invited to walk with Jesus in the ways that bring true and everlasting peace, which takes us to close, to the practice of the Eucharist. You, good, charis, grace, the good grace, the good gift, communion, the Lord's Supper, it's something we, we, we take as a practice of Jesus. You did something very different. You gave. You poured out. You descended into serving in order to save. And that's a different thing. And we, in taking this, we not just affirm that, but we stand with you in this. We bless you and thank you for it and then walk it out with you. We are in your parade. That's Palm Sunday. It's a tale of two parades, very different parades, but three perspectives on these parades. And it's incredibly challenging for us today as it was for them then who did not get it, cheered for a moment, and then when it did not go the way they thought it would go, flipped on Jesus. 
that we would understand what brings true peace and walk with Jesus into it, through it, and offering it for others. So we're going to take a moment, we're going to take some time, and we're going to have uh, some people on this side, a couple people here, a couple people over here, and we're going to take the bread and the cup, and it's just an invitation. The bread is a picture of Jesus' body, gifted, given, serving, pouring out, and the cup, his blood, given for the healing and reconciliation of the world. So when we take it, we hear words like this is a picture, it's a symbol of this gift. Do this, practice. Do this in the remembrance of this sacrifice and gift. And then we take that and we go out and say we will imitate. We will break ourselves open and pour ourselves out for the healing and reconciliation of the world. We're with you Jesus, as Jesus is with the people, crying with them and crying for them, that we would wake up to true peace. So we'll pray and then we'll invite you. As you feel led, you can come up. Um, and there is gluten-free on this side as well if that is needed. Uh, gracious God, we bless you. We bless you for inviting us to shalom, to peace, to wholeness. God, we bless you for forgiving us. That work has been done and can only be done by you. We bless you for that. God, we're grateful for the invitation to follow you, but that is really hard and we need your strength, encouragement, calling to do so because we live in a world that secretly and sometimes really loudly loves empire and powering over and conquering And so, God, the invitation to serve, to give, to love, to forgive is not always easy. But we desire the deeper, true, wider, all-encompassing peace that is yours and that can be ours in and through you. We bless you and we do this practice as an act of worship, and as an act of yes, we will follow. We pray this in the name of Jesus.